When a loved one is in prison, you're serving a sentence of your own. The experience can break you or shape you. Learn how today's guest was able to overcome a system seemingly designed to tear families apart and have it ultimately bring hers closer together. I'm so glad you've joined me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Let's tackle another story from the world of true crime and see what takeaways we can find there. I believe that every Christian's calling is to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So stick around because I'll give you some very practical ideas about how you can do that. This is season four, episode nine. Our book this week is My Incarcerated Life, and we're lucky enough to have as our guest the book's author, Kiana Riley Jones. Kiana is a wife, mother, military veteran, nurse, and businesswoman. But before we get into Kiana's story, I have to give a special shout out and thank you to Amanda from Arizona, who sent me a copy of this book and said she thought it would be a good one to talk about. You were so right, Amanda. If you've listened to the podcast before, you know I've done jail ministry, and I've shared some of the issues that women have while they're incarcerated. Today, we're going to talk about some of the problems women face when they have a loved one incarcerated. For Kiana Riley Jones, that person was her oldest child's father, Vandrick. This was a man that she had known since they were both teenagers, and she admits he had been on the wrong path for sure. But now he was facing a lengthy sentence for a crime that he promised her he did not commit, but he was convicted. And when his jail sentence started, Kiana started one of her own, raising their child mostly on her own. Kiana wanted their son to have contact with his father, but he was only five, and so the visits were confusing and often upsetting to him. Luckily, his teacher noticed that he was going through something, and she worked with Kiana to give the boy what he needed. There were other issues as well. It was hard arranging to be able to visit, finding out what you could and couldn't bring, and even what you were allowed to wear. But Kiana was determined to nurture her son's relationship with his father. During visits and on phone calls and in letters, Vandrick constantly reminded their son that prison was not a place you wanted to end up. To help make sure that she provided her son with the very best chance to avoid that fate, she was about to make a very, very big sacrifice. Kiana enlisted in the military to provide for her family and to get training to become a nurse. She made all of the arrangements necessary so that her son could continue to visit his father while she was away on active duty. It never occurred to her that her family wouldn't be as supportive of this as she had hoped. There wasn't much she could do, and of course, Vandrick felt like he was being pushed out of his son's life. Meanwhile, the military was shaping Kiana into a more confident and assertive person. Her son graduated from high school and was ready to leave for college. During one last visit before he left, Vandrick shared with his son that he had learned to be grateful that prison had saved him from the dangerous downward spiral that he'd been on. He knew that over the past few years, he'd been safer on the inside than he'd been on the streets outside. This difference in Vandrick's attitude took his and Kiana's relationship in an unexpected direction. They'd been drawn to each other ever since they were teenagers. Sharing a son kept them very connected. But it wasn't long before Vandrick asked Kiana if she could see herself married to him. She spent quite a bit of time thinking about it. 
but she knew she could see herself married to him, even though he was still serving his prison sentence. Visiting Vandrick wasn't Kiana's only connection to inmates. She had finished nursing school and her military hitch and was now working as a nurse in a prison. One of my absolute favorite parts of Kiana's book is where she describes praying before she went into the facility where she worked. And she asked God to give her a tender heart so that she would see the inmates the way God saw them and that she would be inspired to give the very best medical care that she could. Now, you know that I've worked in a domestic violence court and I've volunteered in a jail. It really could be so easy to look at people in these systems as people who don't deserve to get the same kind of treatment that we would want for ourselves. There's so much more to this story, so you're going to want to get a copy of Kiana's book and read it for yourself. There are so many amazing ministries to prisoners. Um, Off the top of my head, I can think of Prison Fellowship and Kira's Prison Ministry International. I've put links to both of those in the show notes so you can learn more about what they do and how you can partner with them to help. Your local jails need people to lead Bible studies as well. So find out who's in charge of ministry outreach at your church and ask them how you can get involved right there in your own community. It is a great way to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. Now let's check in with Kiana Riley-Jones. Kiana, thank you for joining me today. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm excited as well. Your book was so interesting to me when I read it because it just touches on so many different aspects of how incarceration really affects so many more people than just the person that's been incarcerated. So share with us something you have had to adjust to that most people wouldn't even imagine would be an issue. Parenting. Parenting is a very tough subject when it comes to incarceration, especially with young children being involved because of their understanding level and what appears normal to them versus what their reality is. The parenting portion is probably the part that a lot of people not in this position or in these circumstances may not have a true understanding of. And I think that's fascinating. I've done jail ministry for a couple of years now, and the women that I visit to do Bible study with are understandably very worried about their children and how the situation affects them. So what kind of hardships do you notice kids going through when they have one or sometimes both parents incarcerated? The emotional impact. I can use myself as an example to try to correlate this a little bit better or give more fluidity in the understanding. My son was five when his father was incarcerated. So you have to think of a child's mind at five years old. How much do they really understand when you're trying to explain this in the best way that they can get it? We as an adult, we understand a whole lot more. We have a lot more reasoning to go from. But from a five-year-old's perspective, it's just different. And They are comparing themselves at that point to the normalcy that they see in other children their own age. So the emotional impacts that they are dealing with sometimes is more difficult to express. So you see it in action or behavior more so than you get the 
let's sit down and verbalize what you're feeling. And how do you deal with other parents when your child's making friends with another child and maybe the other parents are nervous or they're not being very open-minded? A child can't understand that type of impact either. They absolutely cannot. They do not understand why they are treated differently or why a parent is more apprehensive about their child being around them, feeling like the child the child almost takes on the punishment of a crime that they never committed. They are now being judged based off of adult decisions. And they had no they had no part in what potentially happened or could have happened. They're this entity in a bigger circumstance and they don't know how to address it, deal with it. So as a parent being the one that is supporting that child, it's trying to get them to understand that the world just sees things differently and getting them to comprehend it to the best of your ability. And a lot of that is trial and error. There is no perfect way. There is no tell-all that is going to give you the insight of what you need for your particular child. Say I'm a person at my church or my child has a friend at school and I find out that their family is facing this sort of situation. Okay. What can I do in a practical way to either help them or show them love or just be some sort of support? Church environment, we always want to look at them as an inviting place, a place that's open arms for anyone, no matter shape, color, creed. You want to believe that that's the normal experiences of every church. So if you're coming in contact with a child that's experiencing a parent who's incarcerated, just having that extra time or maybe that compassion, being able to communicate to them in a child's way, I understand that one or both of your parents are gone and this is a safe place. This is a place where you can express yourself. And if you're having bad days, if you're just not feeling up to it, we can make accommodations so that you can still address your feelings. But at the same time, we're here to kind of be the barrier or the protection or the shield that doesn't violate how you're feeling at the same time. It really sounds like it comes down to that golden rule. Yes, absolutely. And to, to nurture and, and to be... An- good to people, no matter their situations or circumstances. It's being compassionate or understanding. Yeah, I hate that we have to remind each other and ourselves Mm -hmm. just to be kind to people. Yes. I think from the other perspective of it is sometimes from the incarcerated families is we're so closed off as well because we are, in our own senses, we're concerned about being judged as well. So we don't open up and allow people to come in and help us. We try to face it by ourselves in silence and just maneuver through without saying anything. I can totally understand the desire to do that, but boy, God made us to be in community. And I think we've lost that in a way, our modern society. I believe so. A lot of this I relate to my own personal experiences I put up a shield when it came to, especially to protect my son. Like I just felt that need to not share what I believe to be his secret and my secret. 
that was my protective shield was not to say anything. But at the time that I was forced kind of to come out of my comfort zone and share what I was going through because I, I ran out of alternatives, when I shared what it was that I was going through, I found that I wasn't judged. I found that the people that were around me were more willing to help me very much understanding and very much compassionate to myself as well as my son and gave us options as to, and alternatives as to things that we could do to help each other. Well, and you kind of had a double layer of that. Not only did you have a son whose father was incarcerated over the period of co-parenting, because you had your son when you were young yes, and you and the father weren't together in a relationship. No. But that changed. It did. Eventually, through all that co-parenting and all the time spent together, you all ended up married. We did. Was that hard to tell people? Initially, yes. As I gravitated towards the marriage, the relationship versus us just being co-parent, as I initially went into the relationship, I wanted to tell people, but at the same time, again, I felt those feelings of I'm going to be judged, which I was. I was met with lots of opinions and it took me some time, but I got to a point where I put myself back to what I had gone through when he first was incarcerated, which was almost 18 years prior. And I put myself back in those feelings and I, I had to evaluate that the last time I opened up and I started expressing what I was going through, that people eventually came around and they were different than what my internal mind may have been telling me. Then I started to speak about it. I started to share my romantic feelings or more intimate feelings about a person who was incarcerated. I initially was met head on with judgment, automatic stereotypes. And as they started to see the relationship and started to see how I was approaching the relationship, they started to trust me more and change their views versus me having to change my views to adapt to what their belief system was. And your husband has always maintained that he had nothing to do with the crime for which he was convicted. And so as an investigator and as a paralegal myself, I was so intrigued by your story of just diving in to help him clear his name. Yes. Because not a lot of people would even know where to start. So take us on that journey of, of what you have done and where it's taken you both. I've been around him ever since I was 14 years old. So this is not a person that I just met or anything like that. At this point, we have a older child who's in his 20s. And I never knew what his actual crimes were all the way through until we started to see each other in a different light where we started to want to date each other. In that process, before even getting to the relationship portion or the marital portions that we got to, I just treated him like a friend. So as I'm listening to his story, and he wasn't very open, that's why I never knew a lot of the background details. I just knew that he always told me that he didn't commit the crime. I didn't want to pry because I felt when he's ready to talk about it, he'll tell me. And that's exactly how he approached it. When he was ready to discuss it, he let me know. He gave it to me in bits and pieces. 
But me, I kind of always had this little bitty detective inside of me, this little legal person inside of me. So as I'm listening to it, of course, loving true crime and that genre, as I'm listening to it, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to just take his word for it. I don't want to be that person that every single person who's incarcerated, they didn't do it and they all should go home. I didn't, I don't have that mindset. But I do know that at times our justice system gets it wrong. I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, but also be mindful that this all could be exactly what they convicted him of. So even though I have this little legal person inside of me, but she isn't backed up by a degree of any sort, I just started picking. I went down to California's federal building. And I was like, let me see the transcripts. Most people don't even know there is a transcript that you can pull. These are all things that, you know, through Google research, things like that. If you type in enough information, the system will start to tell you stuff. It'll start to feed you back information that you need. So I knew the first thing I needed to do was look at the entire trial, look at the evidence that was there. And this was a crime that was many, 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 many years before. So I didn't know what still existed, what didn't exist or anything, but I knew I needed to, almost like a book, I needed to read the story. I pulled old newspaper articles. I did a lot of just meddling, a lot of what most people call being news. I mean, really, that's a great place to start. That curiosity, that just digging into the source materials. Good for you. And where did that take you? That took me to, like I say, I went down, I grabbed the transcripts. A lot of times I was running into roadblocks. I went down courthouses that I wasn't supposed to be at because they're like, we don't know what you're talking about, lady. And I was like, just help me. And I still remember this to this day is I went down to the Alameda County Law Library. And it was this little old lady in there who worked there, who's, you know, been there for years. And she's like, you look lost. (laughs) And I was. (laughs) And I'm like, I have this case number. I have this and I have this, but I don't know what I'm doing. And she was the one who mapped me out the plan. She was like, you're in the wrong place. You're looking at the state level and nothing's here at the state. Everything gets pushed over to the federal level once they make the decision that the person is guilty or not guilty. And so I was like, okay. So then she gave me a whole nother case number that I didn't even have. I didn't never know existed, but she was able to go into her files and her records and be able to get that information. And that started the biggest ball rolling. Once I had that number, I went to San Francisco, which is the federal level. I went there and I ran into a few roadblocks over there because people weren't at work and I'm trying to juggle my work schedule and do all of this investigative stuff alongside other things. So I pulled the transcript. I finally got a hold of that, which it does cost. It shouldn't be super expensive, which his wasn't. It wasn't really, really expensive, but you do have to pay for things like this. So I stayed at the building. I believe I was there about six hours just printing every document that they had so that I had my own to take with me. So much so that the guy who worked there, he came out. He was like, it's almost time for me to go home. Can I help you with this? He and I both together printed the entire trial transcripts. I left there and then it's basically just sitting down with a fine tooth comb 
pulling the entire transcript apart and reading it, highlighting it, seeing what was done initially, what wasn't done initially. And that started us, me and my husband, it started us on a journey, but it was a journey he wasn't ready for. I had to ask him because I was being nosy. So I'm doing a lot of this without him even being like, okay with this. But I'm sure once you got in, he was more than okay. Once I got in, I remember I was at a Texas Roadhouse restaurant and I'm talking to him on the phone and I was like, I've kind of done something. (laughs) And are you okay with me? (laughs) And it scared him because nobody has ever been interested. A lot of people will Mm. tell you they believe you or they listen to you, but they don't actually put forth the energy and the effort that it truly takes to do this. So when I asked him, he literally, his his initial response when I first brought it to his attention is he said, I have my entire file under my bunk and I never open it because I don't want to go back down Pandora's box and be left feeling empty again. And I had to comfort and console him and let him know that I meant what I said. I wasn't going to do what he has maybe seen in the past and that my intent was pure, that I just wanted to know the truth and I didn't want to hear it from him. I wanted to see the truth for myself. And the only way I could do that was to pry. It took him about a day or two before he agreed to it, but he eventually agreed to it and he was like, There's going to be a lot and there's going to be a lot of questions and I'll do my best to help as much as I can. So it became my passion and my journey more so than it was for him. It was me kind of hugging or, or, or pulling him along. And then when he started to see that I was really, truly sincere about what I was doing, then he jumped on board. I'm hearing two big lessons from what you just shared with us. If anybody listening has someone that they know that needs this kind of help, that is also insisting that they were wrongfully convicted, but has exhausted their appeals and just needs help, make friends with a law library. (laughs) Yes. They're going to be able to tell you where to look and what to look for and be persistent. You're going to hit speed bumps. You might even hit some roadblocks, but you can go around them or over them, but you've got to have the tenacity. To just keep going to find the answers you're looking for. Absolutely. Absolutely. It takes a lot. Like you said, going over, going around, going through, going under, it's going to take a lot because what you find out along this path or what I found out along this path is when a wrong has been done, a lot of people don't want to admit it. And even though we want to believe as humans that truth is our source and no, everything is supposed to work in our favor. We also realize that there's another side that if something is wrong done, then there are going to be people who do not want to admit that they were involved in the wrong. So it takes a lot. I'll back you up on that 100%. I have worked several cases where that has been just so obvious. But the determination that's been made, they want that to stand because if it doesn't, then they've either not done their jobs or they've been corrupt or or who knows what. Yes. And I know your husband had a public defender with no knock on public defenders. They're overwhelmed. They are. So they're just not going to have the time or the resources to dig in the way you did. Nope, not at all. I think that's where the initial ball fell because 
and I, I used to reference my husband, but at the time of his conviction, he was not my husband. I was in another relationship when he was convicted. So in that relationship, he wasn't as open to having me get involved because the little detective in me existed then. And I would have kind of tried to help him around some of the things he was facing. But his mindset was that the evidence will help me and it'll set me free. It works sometimes, but it doesn't work to 100%. And that's a great point because it is a good system. Yes. It's better than anything else out there. Exactly. But it is made up of humans and we're flawed and we make mistakes. And at times science hasn't caught up to where we need it to be with certain evidence. Correct. And so I think it, it helps to keep a very open mind. Yes. And I love that you have that little detective in you. I do too. I like her. (laughs) Well, for anybody listening that's got that little detective, you can do this. You know, Kiana told us she didn't have any specialized training. She didn't have a degree in this. Her degree was in nursing. Yes. And so you can do it. If you've got someone that you have a passion to help, just go meet a law librarian and take it from there. (laughs) I agree. I, I honestly agree that that was the path. You know, I followed the true crime genres. I'm a SVU and Law and Order and all the other different programs out there. I I veg out on those. So I have seen, or even some podcasts have heard where there are groups out there who, this is now their new lane. They're out doing their own investigative works, just like I did with no formal training, no real big background. They're just out there trying to right a few wrongs. And it does give you a sense of accomplishment once you reach that point of seeing someone's life being turned around and changed through your small efforts. Because I don't look at what I did as big. I look at it as a small effort. I would give you credit for doing something pretty big. And if you want to learn more about it, you can read the book we talked about this week, My Incarcerated Life. Kiana has other books as well. And so if people are interested in learning more about what you've done and what you've experienced, where can they connect with you? I have a website, kianacompositions.com. You can Google my name if you're having a hard time with that. I'll spell out everything because I have a unique name. So it's Kiana, Q-I-A-N-A, compositions, just as the original English word is, C-O-M-P-O-S-I-T-I-O-N-S dot com. Or you can look up on any search engine, just type in my name, Kiana Riley hyphen Jones. The books are also available on Amazon. BarnesandNobles.com. They're available on my website. If you want a copy with my signature, those are available through the website. Only the Amazon ones do not have that. So it's again, Q-I-A-N-A, Riley, R-I-L-E-Y, hyphen Jones, J-O-N-E-S. I hope that you hear from people who were inspired to do what you've done for someone. So all you who are listening, who have that little detective in you too, be safe. Don't do anything crazy. Yes. But you have the skills you need already. And the ones you don't have, that law librarian you're going to make friends with, she'll teach you. Teach you. So thank you so much, Kiana, for sharing your story and for inspiring all of us and for giving hope. Yes. 
I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's been a joy. Remember the story from the second chapter of Mark where Jesus called Matthew to be one of the 12? Matthew had been a tax collector for the Romans, and people knew that he probably overcharged and then skimmed off part of the money that he was collecting. So the Jews didn't really have a very high opinion of tax collectors. So when Jesus shared a meal with Matthew and other assorted folks that the Pharisees and teachers of the law called sinners, these religious leaders were upset, and they said so. Let's read Jesus' response from verse 17 from the New Living Translation. When Jesus heard this, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. It's unclear right here if Jesus is directing this response to the religious leaders or maybe to his dinner companions. But it is crystal clear that Jesus knew the importance of ministering where the spiritual need is greatest. Bible studies in jail are places of tremendous spiritual need. The women that I was blessed to meet gave me a much, much greater appreciation for God's hand in my own life. And it made me want that for them, no matter what they had done to get themselves where they were. I also want us to look at Romans 3.10 from the Living Bible. As the scriptures say, no one is good. No one in all the world is innocent. Of course, that's why we need a savior as desperately as any jail inmate. God sees us all the same. And so we need to look at every person the same. And I know that's hard. It's so contrary to man's fallen nature. But as believers, we've got something inside us that can overcome that and allow us to see as God sees course, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. He can help us minister to people who, like Jesus said, know they are sinners. When you do, you'll make a positive ripple effect of your own on countless people. If you liked this episode, please be sure to check out some earlier ones. Listen to the amazing guests that I've been able to feature. Learn from their fantastic information. And you can also help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI when you share the episode. And if you'll subscribe, give me a five-star rating and a nice review, the algorithm will push The Unlovely Truth out to more people. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.